Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Cast Dice, the podcast that explores the great big wild world of tabletop gaming that exists today. It's been said once or twice, mainly on this podcast, that we are in the middle of a gaming renaissance. There are just too many good games that we can spend our hobby time and our hobby dollars on. And it can lead to a serious case of not knowing what to play next. And I guess that's the purpose of this podcast. It's to talk about the games that my guests and I enjoy playing, to talk about big industry events, and to, you know, talk to the people who create these games. Now, today is a follow-up from a an Australian, I almost said local, and they are kind of local. It is a post-event conversation about one of the, the big annual events that happens every year in Australia. And uh, I have our TO on today to talk about how it went. Ladies and gentlemen, you would know this man, or should I say giraffe? You would know the silhouette of this stuffed giraffe as it its shadow crosses all of the social media of Bolt Action in Australia and in many other places as well. And that is definitely the giraffe's pup, but that is totally fine. When the dog says, yes, that's right, it's definitely time to introduce the one and only Actar Giraffe. Welcome back to Kaz Dice, brother. Cheers, Brad. Thanks for the intro, mate. <laughs> mate, how you been? Welcome back to the show. Yeah, I've been good, Brad. It's been a year, so it's about time we had a chat again. Mm-hmm. Now, the last time you were on, we talked about Sudlich 2021. And this time, we're going to talk about Sudlich 2022. Just as a litmus test, I mean, 12 months ago was a very different time in Australia. We were still having a lot of rolling lockdowns, at least in Melbourne. And you and Tasmania had been affected to a degree as well. But 12 months yeah. on, what does bolt action feel like in Tassie? Still growing. It's quite quite good. There's, we had a couple of new players actually come attend this event that were from different scenes and different local areas, which is great. Apart from that, it's, it's steady. I'd say it's constantly gaming. People are still getting out there, playing their games and that. Um, but as the effects of COVID and lockdowns and everything else, they're all starting to wind back. So we're getting some of our older regular players coming back into the scene as well, which is great to see. It is. Matt, that is so great to hear. Well, let's talk about Sudlich. Sudlich yeah. is the big event. Now, you guys have two events a year, and this is the spring in Australia, fall in the Northern Hemisphere event. This year, it took place on September 17th. Talk us through a little bit about the location and the roll-up to this event because, man, the hype train is always live when you run an event. You always have great publicity. You always have very clear player packs. What was uh, what was the feeling going into Sudlich this year? Well, this year the build-up was uh, a little bit quieter because I've gone back to work, but um, I did try to keep the social media presence up with the build-up. Uh, there was a fair amount of hype around everyone just getting excited to get back together and have another mm -hmm. round of games because, the, as you said, the other event that I run each year, Camp Liner, we got hit by COVID and that massive spike in fuel prices. Mm -hmm. And we went from having 18 players down to six and we just ran out of the shed at the end of the day. Um, our venue itself, we're lucky enough that we're in a carpeted gymnasium. Now, that's something that's only ever going to happen in Tasmania due to the temperature. Yes. Um, but the fact that we have a carpeted gymnasium, we have excellent, they've only just re recently replaced it with all new LED lighting. So the lighting's beautiful, nice and open. Uh, all the tables are set up on 
actual four by eight. So everyone's got a two foot section at the end of the play area to roll your dice, to set your army up, to put your books and stuff. And no one is actually cheek by jowl. Like we probably could still easily fit another 15 to 20 tables and still have space to swing cats and have the kids play in the corner. <laughs> How many players did you end up with this year? We ended up with 18. And that was because we had two late dropouts at the last minute due to family commitments and illness. Um, but that was fine. Like we aim, we always end up with between uh, a minimum of 18, probably the top of about 26. We've got enough terrain to run 30 without having to like uh, spread too thinly the stuff that we have. So keep the quality level of the terrain tables up. <laughs> exactly. And I am going to ask about terrain density in a second, but let's talk about the spread of armies because there was a great spread. I mean, yes, there's a lot of Germany at your event. If I counted right, there was what, nine German players? Yeah, well, we ended up, uh, we ended up with an even split of nine on the Axis side and nine allied side mm -hmm. with Finland swapping over to being on the allies um, instead because um, mm -hmm. they fall under my tournament rules as a minor nation so they can play mm -hmm. on either side which just exactly. makes us keep that red on blue for the whole day and that's just more so we can play some really thematic battles we can drop people on terrain sets that they won't ever have themselves but say if they've got Japanese and Australians then they can play on something that looks like New Guinea and it looks really good. Mate, that is uh, awesome. I, I love that you guys are able to do that. Um, that is a level of infrastructure that as a tournament organizer, I generally <laughs> don't do, um, <laughs> usually because I'm just trying to make sure that people are not playing people they played before. They're playing on new tables, and they're playing people who have had an equal win-loss point ratio. Yeah, um, well, that's, that's the critical part when you are being a TO, is that you the first round you have preset you have some idea of what the people's armies are from betting the lists. Mm -hmm. You then do matchups that are people from out of area or haven't played one another before. And if you've done a couple of years of um, TOing, like this was the sixth year of Operation Sudlik, we've got the background data of who's played who and when sitting mm -hmm. there. So we can go, okay, these guys never played one another. They've got armies that are in the same sort of theme. We've got a table set up that we can throw out and they can play one another off on the first round. Also open up first round to grudge matches if people want to seriously play someone from their local scene that they haven't played for a while mm -hmm. and things like that. So um, we end up with a really good mix between early war forces and late war forces this year, which is good to see. And, well, cool. including two partisan lists of the French resistance, which is very different to see. That was actually my next talking point. Um, you had, as I said, you have a nice spread, but you have three Japanese players and you have two partisan players, things that armies you just generally don't see in Melbourne, although we're starting to see more Japanese players now. You had yes. a Finn army. Of course, you have the smattering of US, Britain, Soviets, and a wall of Germany, but still, that is a great spread. That's really cool, man. Were the partisan lists similar? Because you can play them very different ways. Uh, one was running uh, cavalry and uh, some small squads and infiltration squad sort of things. It was very 
different list. The other one ran the marquee list out of the uh, USD day sectors. So it was running the five man inexperienced squad with a marksman. So he oh, ended up wow. with four or five snipers, I think, in his list. Whoa. Which was interesting. And I did end up playing him at the end because we had a couple of guys that had to go at the end of the mm-hmm. day early. So I ended up playing against that list with the Norwegians. And um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting list. It's good. It's good to see something different. Definitely. Now, I mean, you guys always have cool, interesting lists at your events. Were there other noteworthies? I know there was the last year we talked about the the list that had all the AT guns and the artillery. What about this year? Anything jump out at you? Um, we had probably one, what everybody thought was a really strong list was a double weather wind list. Mm-hmm. I saw that in the, the pictures. Yep. Uh, last stand of Berlin. And um, the, the everyone was concerned about whether or not that would be too tough but there's we run two missions that are objective based and if mm-hmm. you've only got three infantry choices you find it very hard to win the game you may end up cleaning the other guy off but you're probably only going to get a draw and it was cool because both of the verbal wins looked great and they had very different paint schemes but they still yes. both matched the theme of the army and it looked really nice yes it did it a lot of thought and effort goes into the lists and the armies that come to the event. Um, we try to make it more of a hobby celebration to get everyone together. Um, we've got people traveling even in our own state over 340 Ks to come play games for the day. So you try to make sure that everyone has a really good time. Everyone's mm-hmm. got their best models that they can paint out and, um, just, it just really brings everybody up a level and, it, and that's, really been noticeable over the last few years how much the painting level has increased well let's talk about tables because as i said you guys are famous for tables i know you guys are building terrain for over a decade and people are often uh, we just had a an event here in melbourne on the weekend and i am dating this episode slightly by saying that called jump to action and, and we had eight new players and they are, you know, lurking and or posting on the Bolt Action Australia page. When I brought up, oh, yeah, you know, there's Sudlich was last weekend. Uh, a bunch of people were like, wow, that terrain. Like, how do they do that? It's important that people remember that you guys have been doing this for a really long time. And you've built this collection up over time. Yes. And you are constantly innovating your technology and the strategies and techniques that you're using to make it look great and build upon what you already have. Yeah, well, it's it's about you, when you're building terrain, you need to think of um, it's sort of a triad of things. You want playability, survivability, and it's functionality. Right. And you sort of got to make an equal balance of that. It needs to be easy to store try not to make too many great big pieces. I mean, we did go, we do have a lot of really big pieces of terrain now, mm-hmm. like some of the giant hills that people have seen the photos of the table layouts. Um, mm-hmm. But otherwise, most things will fit into a 50-litre tub is your aim, so then you can store it away somewhere. I mean, that's how I do it. The 50-litre yeah. tub is how I store all my terrain. But looking at some of your tables with those giant hills, uh, I just look at them and go, I wish I wish I could store that in my house. Um, let's talk about density. 
because I know that you guys like to have a nice variety of tabletops. So for this event, clearly you had nine tables. Actually, I think you may have even had more. Yeah, you had 10. Yep, and you cycled through them. I know you guys like to have a widespread of terrain to cover different theaters, but how how much do you factor in terrain density? Because I've been asked that recently as a TO, and I thought, okay, I like to spend a lot of time thinking about having a variety of that, of terrain types and densities on different tables at an event so people get a nice variety, but you guys are the masters. So what what are your thoughts on that? Uh, Every time you lay out a board, try to make it tell a story. Mm. So when people come and walk up to a table to take the, the Stalingrad one sort of setup that we did this year. We had mm-hmm. the oligarch's manor house blown up in the corner. We had the oil refinery on the side. We had the roll of the peasants' huts lining the road and just putting those sorts of elements together so then you can actually see what um, is trying to be foretold into it and then you look at the functionality of it. Most of our tables end up more terrain on it in the shed when we're setting them up, and then we go, right, no, and then we pull bits off. Yeah. Because it just makes it easier to go ham with laying everything out and making it look fantastic and then look at the playability. Yeah. I ran a tabletop at Easter Front earlier this year at our Conquest event that was a ruined city and it was all set up as ruins on a ruined tabletop uh, city tabletop mat. And when people played on it, they said, wow, that's a lot of ruins. So I took that feedback and I bought another mat and I actually then built a couple of complete buildings and for jump to action. And then for operation bear, I've actually taken half of the ruins off of the city board and I put on completed buildings in their place. And in the process, I now have two tables where before I had one, but there's that variety of finished building and ruins. So you, you know, it doesn't necessarily slow down play as much because people are going to maneuver around the buildings or go through the buildings rather than sometimes if there's a lot of ruins, it can really slow things down. And that can lead to maybe a little bit of feel bads because you can't really get to grips with your opponent. So uh, I think that's an important lesson to consider when you are coming up with your own event. Would you agree? Uh, yeah, definitely. And like you're saying with your whole buildings and your real ones, try to like cluster the whole buildings together. So then right. Big HE might have line of sight to the front one, but doesn't have line of sight to the one behind it sort of thing. You've got to think of your rule set that you're playing with so then people can adapt their game style and go, okay, I can occupy that building. It's going to be mm-hmm. a safe haven for my infantry. It's not going to, unless the HE device comes rolling around the corner, mm-hmm. then at least I've got a couple of chances to utilize all the terrain on the board is the other thing. You, you want it to tell a story, but to be functional. I did have a laugh on the weekend uh, at Jump to Action when I saw our good friend Pedro bringing his KV2 uh, to our event. And best painted winner, uh, Ben Llewellyn, parked his beautifully painted flamethrower team behind a building at which Pedro pointed a bunch of guns at and then pulled the trigger on the KV2, destroyed the building, and then mowed down the flamethrower team through the rubble because I can see you now. I mean, this is why Pedro was second in the event. The man uh, thinks one one move ahead, and that KV two, 
it's it can take out a building that's for sure well let's talk about some of the variety of tables now you've mentioned the stalingrad table i know you've done italian tables in the past and you've done yes. some great pacific tables but what are some of the themes that you are really happy that you guys have for your events? We had the Tarawa layout return to the event mm -hmm. this year. Uh, that had been in the shed for a bit and had a bit of a quiet time. Um, we didn't put the pier and the water out because that sort of slowed down the gameplay. It's really good to mm -hmm. spread that. There's enough of that to spread over two six by four tables so that you can do the beach landing and then do the inland fighting near the airstrip. Um, for people that want to go do a bit of research on that one, that's the Battle for Benito Island, Tarawa. Um, mm -hmm. The other one that really was uh, like sort of that, like we always try to do one table for Sudlik that's a brand new layout. And this year we did the uh, Battle for the Tennis Court for Kohima. Now you have to explain that because uh, no matter how deep your knowledge of World War II is familiar with the Battle of the Tennis Court. Well, the one thing that you'll find out is the first thing you'll do is you go, oh, and look at the dates. And it happened on D-Day. Mm -hmm. So why D-Day is a very significant event. Uh, on the other side of the planet, in the jungles of Burma, just outside India on the Kohima Infal border, they were busy fighting over a tennis court, literally within grenade range of one another. And you look mm -hmm. at the, some of the photos of this, they're fighting on the sides of a mountain where yes. some English guys have built a garden and put a tennis court in and they fought for bitterly for seven days across it. What I love about when you built this table, because you posted a lot of pictures of it in the run-up and at the event, is that it's a rolling hill. It is yes. actually, um, what, three full tiers with little steps and little ramps to get around on it. But it really does put you into that situation. The immersion on it is wonderful, more so than, you know, if you had a flat tabletop with the same buildings, the same tennis court, the same trees, just by having that, that's that three tiers of steps going up on the board, man, does it really, you know, put you in that place it is such a wonderful table it was a it's a project of passion for howard yowie of course um it, we did a lot of research on it mm -hmm. um, spent a lot of time looking at different photos and images from the uh, the parachute drops for the supplies and how they're all tangled in the trees and then if you keep digging around the internet you'll find pictures of mm -hmm. all the elements that are on there from the naga houses that are on fire to the um the bamboo bush and scrub that was in spots across it because this fight happened mm -hmm. at over 2,000 to 3,000 meters above sea level. Oh, wow. Is where they're yeah, fighting. Yeah, that is on the side past. of the mountain. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. so they're literally on the side of the hills in the middle of nowhere. And if the uh, Allies hadn't stopped the Japanese there, then the road through to Imphal and into India was open. I, I love the, the just the eye for detail that you guys put into these tables. Just... <sighs> to actually represent what was there. It's one of those things you can go and, and go, okay, I'm going to make some ruined rubbles for a random city, which is great, but go have a look, go find some 1940s pictures or an even 1930s pictures of what was there beforehand. 
and then destroy it. So if you're looking at like France and Normandy, you look for the buildings that are whole to begin with that would have been there and the 1920 structures and stuff like that. And then if you're going for something specific to make a real talking point, go have a look at one of the battles you really like, find a building that you really enjoy. If you keep scrolling through, you'll keep finding different angles of it. Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing, just finding those little details to be able to tell the story for each battle. Um, like the Tunisian hills this time. with the and Thank you, dogs. Um, the Tunisian hills this time, we put the um, the fetid water at the bottom where the because Tunisia is actually not all desert. They never set up a uh, structures out in the desert without any support. So it was more of being able to tell that storyline without having to worry too much about it. Um, but also making sure that your playability is really good across the board. Then other ones like this year with the cobblestone streets, instead of building high for our um, cobblestone one, we went with a more low-lying level sort of setup. So we had craters, we had rubble piles, we had only a few whole buildings, and then we jammed a railway line down the centre. Yeah. And there's someone who's decided to visit next door, according to the dogs, and I need to know about it. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. There you go. Sounds like you're getting a package as well. Um, the delivery <laughs> man just came to my house as well. It's that magical time of day, I suppose. Uh, well, let's let's talk about the event itself. Now, clearly, we've talked about the tables and we've talked about the the number of armies, but let's talk about the results. Clearly, you guys played three games over the course of the day. As you said, two of the missions were objective based. One was kill points, but yes. let's talk about. Who did what? Who were the big notable players here? Um, what were some of the big takeaways for you as the TO? Well, we do a scoring system out of 20, so 15 points for a win. Then there's five sub-objectives. Um, so most expensive unit alive, enemies most expensive unit dead, your officer alive, their officer dead, and you've got a unit within 12 inches of the enemy's table edge is how to score you 20 points. Um, mm -hmm. And that is on top of winning the actual objective-based game or the kill point scenario that you're playing on the scenario. Uh, <laughs> Damien Taylor was our outright winner and best ally mm -hmm. with a force of the US Rangers and was closely behind the heels was um, Dennis Costa with his Axis, with his Germans. Mm -hmm. um, and that played, wasn't the Warble Wind not, not Army? German, sorry. He was, no, he wasn't playing German. Sorry, he was playing Japanese, Dennis was. Yeah. There we go. That makes um, sense. Yeah. He was playing a Japanese force based on New Guinea, and he got mm -hmm. to – like people would come in and go, I really want to play the Australian Army on that table sort mm -hmm. of thing. And you get those sort of requests during the during the day, and you're like, yeah, no problem. And you try to shuffle people around to make that sort of stuff happen. And then Malcolm was the best minor power with um, using his Finnish force, his continuation war Finns, and they played very well all day, seeing they were going up against the Axis forces, which is not normally – their stand opponent. No, exactly. Now, in that case, am I correct that the Finn player was using a T28? You're correct. Yes. There's nothing so like someone... the, big, the big behemoth on the table yet. <laughs> so on the day, I mean, as you were running through the missions, did you find any army that really just stood out and did well? Um, I mean, clearly you have a top three who did, clearly did well. But was there sort of 
an army type that particularly did well for this, or was it just sort of an, a generalist spread that worked its way through? Is that question making sense? Yeah, yeah your question makes sense. And um, I know what you mean by whether or not there was like a meta or a list that would play well. Um, the trick that we find is that the terrain balances out the game. Yeah. This game, it really relies on having good terrain levels being mm-hmm. able to tell your story, as I said before, but also to be able to balance out the game itself. Um, it's no good if you're playing a versus against a, say, Japanese spear horde that's racing through the jungles and you can't actually shoot them. Right. At all exactly. Because you decide that it's all blocking line of sight. Um, and it's just about making sure that you have that discussion with your opponent, the start of your game at every event, but even if you need to have a little checklist, can I see your army list? How many dice have you got? What are your army special rules? Mm-hmm. How are we treating this terrain? And just go through that at the start of every game and go, okay, this is plays like this, this plays like that. Uh, take the Kohima board, for instance. We had that set up, and if anyone asked any questions about it, the stuff that was on our area train kidneys blocked line of sight. But the rest of the terrain, all the shrubs and that on it, you could see through, but was providing light cover. There you go. Yeah. So then it looks like it was really thick, but that's what we wanted to represent on the board. Mm-hmm. And there was the tennis court was really the only open, open piece of the table, which is what it was in the battle. So, and, and it's just making sure that if you have those sorts of elements in place, um, it really does level out the playing field. It doesn't matter what you bring along to to the table. Then, as I said, the double verbal wins are nasty in, mm-hmm. in most events. And if you saw that in, say, um, say Operation Sandstorm or one of those on a Harris table, and you end up on a open desert table, like you can make a desert table, just make it tell a story. Yeah. Have the hills. Have a bit of a village. Mm-hmm. Have a bit of a a um, oasis area. Have a bit more blocking line of sight stuff. Even though the think of the desert you think it's all open and flat but if you have rocky outcrops and depressions and craters on it suddenly it allows for all the armies to be able to play on the same level yeah exactly i had a set of custom ridge lines built a long time ago that was dubbed by the creator as mount morin and it's <laughs> um 12 inch increments and it's about eight inches wide and it's really tall and is sloping over the top um, and then there are two end caps, but I have enough to go four foot across, you know, the short edge of the board and then the two end caps, which is like another, you know, what, six inches each. So about five feet long if I wanted to. And I've run that in a bunch of different ways over the years as a giant five foot diagonal down the middle of the board as two, two foot hills coming in in the middle on either side with the end caps. So it, yeah, and then pass. putting it, a, yeah, making, and then making a cross with the roads. But yeah, you have that desert table and all of a sudden you can't see a big chunk of it unless you get to the top and then that creates a wicked kill zone. So, you know, it's providing those opportunities for players to have to think in a different tactical way, but also, as you say, not just leave the table wide open for all the big guns necessarily. Were there any armies that jumped out at you that as far as painting wise that just blew your socks off and who won best painted at your event well best painting went to nathan Birchall with his beautiful looking dac force and he made a gorgeous looking display board himself all from scratch mm-hmm. for it to go on to they were lovely painted miniatures uh 
other than that, the, there were so many well-painted minis on the day. Uh, we do best painted after the first round. Everyone sets up their tape there. If they got a display board, you set it up on the end of the table on that two foot mm-hmm. section at the end. So you have it all displayed up. We have lunch and then everyone goes around, has a look while you're, you're having lunch and can then just pick out, come up and tell me which army you really want to vote. So then you can go, I really like that over there. So then people might not know other people's names, but mm-hmm. then it's quick and easy. We get a quick vote up and he was the clear winner by his peers voting for his best paying army. Other ones though, uh, both the Parson forces, gorgeous looking, absolutely gorgeous. Mm-hmm. One just had to get his bases finished and probably would have won best paint if he had the bases done. He just ran out of time. He's one of those guys that likes to try to leave everything to the ninth hour to to get done. Yeah. Uh, and some, it didn't matter whose force it was, everything was painted really well to a degree. We had a couple of guys, um, unpainted miniatures, and I'm thinking I might actually have to give out an award for bringing an unpainted miniature next year because like it's fairly rare that it happens. We don't yep. force a painting standard. It's just that we're just, like, oh, yeah, that's looking really cool. Your force looks good. Yeah. What are you thinking of doing with that when it comes to painting it? And you just try to build your community up in yeah. getting its um, techniques and stuff like that done. So, yeah, man, exactly. As someone who played Partisans, I assure you, you can't wait to the last minute with all those different <laughs> colors and uh, all those models. But yeah, no, I mm, that that hurts uh, to to get so close and not finish the bases. But yeah, we we run something similar. Obviously, you want people who are new to the game, who may not have finished their army, to come, um, yeah, you know, and, and, you and join to, in. And, it, and you don't it, want it to penalize them either. Yeah, well, it also encourages them to finish their army to say, "Wow, that was fun." You know, let me actually finish this now. It can really break up the grind of having to finish an army. That said, you know, we want people to play with painted stuff. Uh, at jump, we had one player who was our who's on our waiting list. We actually had a player drop the morning of. And so he had been building his army as if he was coming. And then because the day before I'd said, look, I can't guarantee a spot, real life stuff had come up and he hadn't finished the army. And I said, look, come on anyway. I'll give you one of my armies, which yeah. he did. And he had a great time. And yeah. he is back to building his army, his Canadians. And I'm looking forward to seeing them at Operation Bear. So it's going to be awesome. Yeah, well, recently, I was fortunate enough to have uh, Richard Bright fly mm-hmm. in from New South Wales. He was down Tassie for a bit. And we got a game in on the shed on the Kohima board. And we just used my mm-hmm. forces that I've got here. And it's always written in the pack. And most TOs out there in Australia that I know will say, if you don't have an army, you're really keen, or you, you're building your force up, you, you want to play with the pain one, most of us have a force all five or six lying around. The addiction is strong, that's for certain. If I go through the ones that I haven't painted yet, well, yeah, that's a different story. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I got a couple of painted armies too, uh, one, one or two. Gorshin from our, our one of our buddies over in Perth uh, from the HMG podcast is going to be over, hopefully not too distant future. And he was mm. like, so if I come over, do you have an army for me? I said, yes, <laughs> I do. <laughs> One or two. Uh, in fact, the last time you were in town, Actar, we uh, reenacted one of the great battles between G.I. Joe and Cobra playing bolt action with my armies uh, on the new jungle board. Yeah, we did. It was a great game, Brad. It was really appreciative of you to host me. Oh, man, I always extend the, the favor. You can always come down the shed. You might have to cuddle up to the dog for the night, though, to keep warm. You know I don't mind that. 
I've been trying to get to Tassie for quite a while. It's the, actually the one state I have not been to and the one capital city in Australia I haven't been to is Hobart. So we'll have to have to hook that up at some point. It's a, it's a good defensive de- device, the moat. That's for certain. <laughs> it it does, really does is. Of, it does stop a lot of you Victorians getting in. So, Yeah. Well, I had uh, a couple of very dodgy experiences on giant ferries traveling from one part to a, one part of Japan to another growing up. So uh, I think I'll fly. I'm sure the technology has come a long way since then and or uh, my childhood memories may be amplified compared to what they were at the time. But I did go cool. through a tropical storm on a ferry and I I have no intention of throwing up that much again in my life. So uh, just don't travel in winter and uh, as long as you don't mind going on like a turboprop dash eight to fly in. So. <laughs> Is it weird that I'd prefer that to a ferry? Anyway, um, <laughs> let's let's stop talking uh, transportation here. Uh, well, cool, man. Any big takeaways though for the future? Because clearly this is an annual event. Clearly, you have Camp Liner in what about six March. months from now? Yeah, six Sorry, months we, away. Yep. We, we try to break it up like the TOs in Australia. We all try to um, spread our events out so we're not conflicting with one another. And it's mm-hmm. critical because we are a small population. If we're in England, then it wouldn't matter at all, but we're not. Right. We don't have the massive gaming community because we don't have the population to do it. Takeaways from this event, support your sponsors, guys. Get out there and buy the stuff from them. And mm-hmm. speaking of which, I'm going to hijack this and go, Vivid Knights of Dice, amazing bloke. You want something, he can make it for you. Amen. Yes, it's Bularasa range is amazing set of terrain really good for like basic shells getting out there and quickly building a table up with some basic terrain making techniques uh may 40 miniatures sander over there all the way in the netherlands um excellent minis love michael percy as a sculptor does great stuff Mm -hmm. also does some of the um uh, great escape games sculpts uh, I love great escape games, man. Yeah, there's. I've got some really great. He's got a great sculptist, and he's got some really good miniatures. If you want to play some unique forces, and then we'll go on to, of course, War and Peace Games in Australia. If we didn't have them helping us out, we wouldn't be running the events that we do. Um, they're fabulous guys, great sponsors all the time. Rubicon Models. Uh, if you want a kit that has that extra bit of detail, it's brilliant kits. Can't mm-hmm. go wrong with them. Uh, Lead Bears Tufts, guy over in South Australia, handmade Tufts, beautiful stuff. I'm just giving him a shout out because he deserves it. Uh, <laughs> so I'm thinking through who else is here. Uh, dice of War, even though Adam's relocated over to WA, custom dice for your force. So then you're yeah. true rolling D6s. You don't have to worry about floating them to see whether or not they're offset or anything. He's got the technique down exactly. perfect to make custom dice. They are great. Um, <clears throat> and then of course, Warlord Games, because this was their first, um, I think we may have been the first one in Australia for their new sponsorship setup. And for those that are interested in, oh, what are they throwing in? We got the silver dice. We got um, the actual official Warlord certificates, which um, mm-hmm. we did a bit of calligraphy on, made tied them up, made them look really good and stuff like that and value of their set for i'm not sure whether or not they've released what the rules are for it yet so i can't really go too much into too many details mm-hmm. but it does go off your um number of players now is your support pack level and that is 
really good setup so you can get your small communities building up you get a good level of support and they're there they they make the game yeah the faq is a bit long-winded we're all hanging out for version three but that'll happen one day we were also sponsored by Warlord. And um, to be clear, I, I do need to announce um, for those who were at Jump to Action when I said that Moab is the first big event that Warlord is going to be sponsoring in Australia, and it is. However, Sudlich did beat Jump to Action by a week. So yes. um, <laughs> so you guys did get it first. I wasn't sure if you had. and I We didn't go out promoting it as much as I probably could have done because yeah. it was still yeah. a very uh, early beta of what might well, be available. Mm-hmm. And it was a case of the, um, and Sean and that at War and Peace um, going, okay, here's the idea that we've got. We're sending you this. It's um, you've got some of this stuff and some of that, uh, but uh, yeah, they're just amazing guys. All of them, really all of our sponsors. If you get out there, buy your stuff, Eureka Miniatures in Victoria. Um, I'm just going to start labeling people that deserve a shout out now. Like, <laughs> I didn't even well, ask on. for I anything, do... but, but they deserve it. Like, <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I do want to take a second because the new Warlord support structure, I mean, you would know this as well as I. Warlord has been supporting events off and on for years. Yes. But now in Australia that the Warlord support system is done through War and Peace, we make sure that it's consistent, it is easily a- attainable, and yes. that it, it arrives before your event. You don't have to work by international shipping, and it, it's wonderful. It, it and turns up the on guys, time, not a month after the event, which is great. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But that's not Warlord's fault. That's no. the Post's fault. Just to have local representation and to have such friendly, knowledgeable people helping support, promote local events is just wonderful. And I can't say enough good things about the program. If you are looking to run a Warlord uh, bolt action event, please do reach out to War and Peace Games. It can be a pretty small event. Talk to Sean about how many people is the minimum. Um, I believe you need something like 10 people, which I'm you still know, to, not 100% sure. There hasn't been exactly. anything officially released as uh, right. all we know is that it goes off numbers. There's a tier system until exactly. they iron out all the bugs in it. And I think uh, from what I understand from talking to people internationally, this is what they're going to be rolling out now everywhere because it makes exactly. them makes it easier for them to pick their orders, makes it easier for them to pick your price for, okay, you got this mm-hmm. level of pack and they can just throw it and send it sort of thing so it, it all makes sense it's a it's a good business model idea for them it is and it is as you say everything's pre-packed so at the warehouse they only need to click a button yeah. and then those things go it is so handy yeah. and again consistency is just wonderful it's a new era of support from warlord games for bolt action but most importantly it's through war and peace games so yes. guys, um, I know that literally while we were recording just now, my door rang and I had to go get a package from War and Peace Games because I was buying toys from them, not for an event, for myself. Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> so, no, actually, uh, it, it's a dreadnought for horse heresy. So it's definitely not for bolt action. Uh, I, I want to say to Peter. Yeah. I am definitely, I tried painting P dot for 15 mil once and uh, I'm never doing that again. 
No, no, that hurts. <laughs> when I start talking about P dot camouflage on 15 millimeter models on a bolt action podcast, it may be time to call it a day though. Actar, thank you so much for coming on brother. I, I'm, it's so good to hear that bolt action is back in Tasmania. I know earlier in this year, it was a little bit of a disappointment that you had some folks who had to stay away because of health reasons. And then the, the fuel situation hurt your numbers dramatically. You guys have such a strong, vibrant scene. It's wonderful to hear the bolt actions back, baby. Yeah. Thank you very much, Brad. Yeah. And then like, hopefully maybe might try to make my way over the moat one time myself to try to get to one of yours. Do it. Just trying to get those social credit scores up with the wife first. <laughs> the struggle's real. I earned all the points I needed to go to Moab, and then um, we had a catastrophic carpet problem uh, that I'm still dealing with. So uh, unfortunately, Moab is not in my future, uh, but I'm hoping the points are still saved up for a future trip somewhere. Holiday. Holiday in autumn to Tasmania, you know? There you go. Possibly. Possibly. that I, I have not been, but... You and I also share a, we are both TOs that run our events in similar times of year because we are hard pressed into running Easter front on Easter, go yeah. figure. We then need to have six months off that. So we tried this year. Uh, I had a couple of people ask why wasn't Operation Bear in September? One, we had a uh, logistics problem of getting the venue, but also more importantly, I wasn't going to throw Victoria's largest event the week between Sudlich and Moab. That would have been yeah. just a massive jerk move. So instead we put a hard cap smaller event because that way people, you know, it was for people who weren't going to the other events. And we did explicitly say that in the advertising, but bear will be running later this year. Yeah. And uh, it just means that you get some time. If you're going to be jumping around between Victorian and Tasmanian events to uh, paint also, a new army twice also a year. With the, with the dates of um, sort of like, like a dig, traditional date was in august and um we're probably going to go back to the august and we're deliberately moving it there for a bit so that we didn't clash with the artillery australian artillery Arm museum mm -hmm. uh, yeah with their um their great big day that they put on up there so um it was one of those things we were trying to we're still finalizing the australian scenes calendar i should mm -hmm. say like we're trying to make sure that we get everything really well melded out for next year so we're all we've got a new to group if anyone's as interested in knowing that we are all communicating with one another we are trying to make sure that we're not stepping on one another's toes it's um, a real important part for us because if it's not if we can't put on a good show for you guys to be able to come along and play to then there's no point in us running it it's the players that make the event it doesn't matter what your scenes like doesn't matter what your trains like doesn't matter what your armies are painted like it's about getting you guys together having a good time rolling some dice, having a laugh at the stupidity of the fact that you're playing toy soldiers in your late thirties slash forties. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Forties. <clears throat> Hopefully yeah. not. <laughs> the old man moniker is starting to itch, but actor brother, again, always a pleasure to see you. Um, clearly the pups in the background agreeing, um, yeah. but Nate, hopefully we see you in Melbourne soon and we get to play another game and maybe even with your uh, famous Norwegians. Yeah, maybe. Might might have to bring the FJ next time around from May 40 miniatures. Like mm -hmm. nice early war force. So finally got some paint on them. And they look wonderful. The yeah, those models look great. 
now to decide whether to build the Yiffenberg airfield or the Gebersberg for the uh, table for the terrain for them is the next question. <laughs> mm-hmm. Not uh, Ibn Amal. I suppose that's too early in the war. For that's those Belgian. Individuals. Yeah, that's Belgian. Got yeah. it. All right. Wrong. Well, ladies country. and gentlemen, thank <laughs> you for listening to this episode of Cast Dice. As always, if you have any feedback for the show, please do go to the Cast Dice Facebook page and let us know if you enjoyed this episode or if you would like to hear about another event or have us talk about another topic. It is really important that we give you what you want. So please do let us know if this is the content you're looking for. If you have not checked us out, please go to YouTube. You can listen to this episode and you can see pictures of the armies and tables that we talked about. And you can even see the elusive mug of one Actar giraffe. So you can find him on the street without looking for a little green giraffe. Ladies and gentlemen, when you are playing the games that we know and love, I hope that your dice roll hot. I hope your beverages are cold. But more than that, we in Cast Dice hope that you are having fun. Stay safe out there, guys. Good night. And the terrorists fanned out.